Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, the gentleman on my show was on five years ago, and at the time, he was in Long Island. But today, he's in Florida, and his band Foghat has a new album out called Sonic Mojo, and I, I really... I really like the song A Little Bit of Everything, and my guest is Roger Earl. How you doing, Roger? Hello, Steve. Nice to see you again. How you doing? I'm doing well. So so what are you doing in Florida? You know, I know you're living in New York. What are you doing in Florida? We're um, actually have new albums coming out Friday, tomorrow. tomorrow. Ah, ah. We've, been, uh, we've been working on it for the last couple of months. Uh, actually, we're down in Florida at our studio in Deland, and um, we're relearning the album because we're going to be playing about eight songs from the new album. Uh, and we're doing a show on Sunday the 12th at the Iridium in Manhattan, the Iridium Club. And then the following Friday, I think it is, the 17th, we're playing in San Juan Capistrano at the Coach House, and we're having a record release party. So we will play about, we're playing, I think, seven or eight of the songs from the new album. And we'll be playing a couple of classic Foghat tunes and a couple of songs we haven't played in years just because we've been having fun all week. We're relearning songs and talking about what we want to play. So um, it's a party. I love a party. I do too. And I'm going to tell you, you know, the album... What made you decide to come out with a new album? Because, you know, you could rest on your laurels and you could go out and just play Foghat and people would love it. And they'd be like, oh, we love this band. You have the big hits. But what made you to come out with a new album? I know it's uh, 12 or 13 songs. And uh, what made you decide to sit there at this point and say, you know what? Foghat needs a new album. I know you came out with it a few years ago, but what made you come out with this? We've, uh, we're always working on a record because we have our own studio down in Florida. So January, February, March, we usually come down south. I live in New York. The rest of the guys in the band live, well, Scott lives in Nashville, uh, and uh, Brian and Rodney live down here in Florida. But we get together because it's cold up in New York, and uh, I become a snowbird. I like it down here. And we just sit in <clears throat> in the studio. It's You know, it's a four-bedroom house in the middle of nowhere, got like on, on 10 acres. We can make as much noise, and what we do is just get... Yeah, the juice is flowing again. We we just jam for hours on end. And Brian Bassett, our lead and slide guitar player, is he's the bright one in the band. He's also our engineer and producer. So if we start working on songs, which is when we do it, I'll either bring some lyrics or some ideas. Scott will have um, some songs he he's working on. Rodney May and Brian will have some riffs that we've collected over the year, you know, being out on the road. And we just get together and start playing. It's, you know what, I love the recording process and love sitting down with the band and just jamming and working on stuff. And the reason I got into playing in the first place is because I love to play in a band. You know, it um, gets boring sitting down like, you know, working on rudiments and stuff. So you have to do that. but. Playing with the band, that's that's the fun part, you know, when you're making music and being creative together. And uh, that's the reason we do it. Um, our last album was seven years ago. This is our 17th studio album. So we have, we have a lot of material to pick from. So we try to pick 
one from like each sort of uh not only we couldn't actually that that would put us up to about five hours a, a night um i don't think i could do that <laughs> i'm good for about three or four hours in the studio and then i then it's like you know excuse me i'm uh, getting a little tired here because <laughs> it is still a rock and roll band but um now i'm really happy with the new album I, I love the way it feels i love the way the songs i come together and um playing with this band is just Tons of fun. These guys are great. How did you assemble this band? Because as you said, you know, you've been in Foghead over 50 years. So it's, it's you know, and there's been different lineup changes and, you know, life happens. But how did you come up with this current lineup? And it sounds like you all have a really good relationship because you can just hang out and jam. It just seems like it's very organic. It is. It is very. That's a good term, actually. Uh, well, Brian Bassett, our lead and slide player and engineer and producer, has been with us, what, 20, 27 years almost. He's played you know, with Lonesome Dave. He's played with Rob Price. So I mean, he's been part of this band for a long time. We, uh, he was also in Molly Hatchet, um, 1976. Play that funky music, wild boy. Uh, and um, about... Seven years ago, we started on this record, and um, it's just fun. And uh, Scott Holt, uh, I first met Scott in 2014. He came down to the studio to to play play with us. We, we, actually, we everybody has like a I say stand-in. What's the other word for us? Understudy. It just the thing is, when you when you book dates, we book between sixty and seventy dates a year. If something comes up, somebody gets ill, or somebody has to have a procedure, it happens. And instead of cancelling the show, which then everybody loses out, especially the promoters. You know, they they send half the uh, money up front so we can get our plane tickets and all that stuff. But more importantly, they people, you know, buy tickets in advance. And if you cancel the show, promoters trying to send the money back and or the ticket agencies, it's just a nightmare. It's happened once or twice with us. So what we do is we have an understudy. I have uh, two uh, drummers who would sit in for me if, they, if I need them. It only happened twice. First time when I broke my back about how many years ago? 15 years ago. Bobby Rondinelli sat in for me for about 10 shows because the, the shows were booked. And we, 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 the flights are booked. Um, Brian Bassett has an understudy. Uh, Matt Baranti is his understudy. Great lead and side guitar player plays with a, a Norman Brothers band in Pittsburgh. And Rodney O'Quinn, well, we don't have an understudy for him. Well, he's only 56. I mean, he should make it anyway. <laughs> Here we have, we have a guy called Dan Waters, who's an incredible musician, plays, great bass player, uh, piano player, guitar, a great singer. Um, and Brian, uh, see, Brian, me, is that everybody we got? We covered Scott. We don't have one for Scott. But if he gets ill, we're, we're screwed. So, but he's only, what, 57, isn't he? Something like that. He's a kid. So, um, that, assembling the band, what happened, how it really came about was, um, the last studio album we did was Under the Influence, the previous studio album. And um, it was a double album, vinyl, and we were about three or four songs 
short for a double album. There is, you know, we, we, we can get a certain amount of songs on each uh, vinyl. And uh, Tom Hambridge was our producer. He came down to our studio down here and we finished the album in Nashville. But what happened was um, when we were writing the, the songs for the album, we've, we, uh, we were about three songs short for an album. So Scott came down and instead of writing three songs, typical band, we wrote 17. <laughs> three of those songs, four of those songs went on the uh, Under the Influence album and Scott Holt uh, became, uh, well, actually we did a put a band together called Earl and the Agitators. We had all these songs and we made another CD as well. So uh, Scott's been with us uh, peripherally since then. And uh, he's an incredible musician, great singer. Um, he played with Buddy Guy for 10 years and he joined us uh, two years ago, joined the band officially. Um, Charlie Hune uh, sent an email to our manager, Linda, and said that he wouldn't be coming for rehearsals, which was three days away before we were about to go on tour again. He's retiring. And we all went, Oh shit. <laughs> fortunately, Scott was in the room and we were work we were writing some songs together. And I I looked at him and I said, You, you want to be a singer in Fogger? He said, ah! <laughs> uh, so within three days he was learning uh he already knew a number of the songs anyway. But um, that was when he joined the band and uh, uh, we did our first date, I think, 10 days later. We, did, we went on a cruise and um, Scott is now an official, uh, the official lead singer in Fogcat um, and uh, lead guitar. And Rodney O'Quinn, our bass player, sings a couple of songs as well. He's got a great voice. So we have... Two great lead singers. Brian Bassett has a great voice, but trying to get him to sing, he's very, very quiet and laid back. He likes to just like, he's into his like slide and guitar. And uh, he's the bright one in the band. Without him, we wouldn't, we couldn't do anything. So that's basically how the band came together. Now, now the album, how, tell me about the title, Sonic Mojo. Because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something you, you know, Mojo, I always think is like someone's cool. They got something going. On. I got the Mojo, and Sonic seems like, yo, I'm powerful. You know, boom, Sonic, boom. Well, tell me about the title and why did you choose that title? Because it is catchy, which is great. Yeah, uh, good. Um, I think Scott came up with Mojo, and I believe our manager maybe came up with the word Sonic. Sonic. I'm going to read it to you. Sonic, a frequency within the audibility range of the human ear of waves and vibrations. I like that. Mojo, a charm or amulet thought to have magic powers. Yeah, that, that, uh, that had a certain ring of truth for this band in it. And uh, it uh, seems to work. Hold on. I've got it. All right, see that? That's good. Now, here's a question for you, because you had the album, and I grew up, you know, I grew up as a kid buying albums. You know, you ride my bike to the album, 
record store when you heard something, you'd buy it and then you'd look at it and you'd smell it and you'd read it and you'd yeah. look at the tracks and you came out with the album. Who decided the track order? Because this music is very different. There's a little bit of countryist, there's a little bit of like a ZZ top soundish a little bit. There's some eighties some sound. It's it's got a lot of different songs. How did you decide what order to put them in? Because it keeps you it doesn't you don't digress. It's not like Boom, boom. It, it's good. But who decided what order you guys were putting these in? Everybody in the band. Um, once we finished, decided on what songs were going on the album, the tracking was done with every by everybody. Brian, uh, Rodney, Scott, we all, and myself, and Linda, of course, our manager. We all took it home and like wrote things down. And the interesting thing is... Um, we, we all came really, really close. We decided on what was going to be the first one. We decided on what was going to be the last one. And then all the songs in between, they all kind of, everybody like went, yeah, that'll work, that'll work. I remember Scott called me up one time. He was out driving in his truck, listening to it, had it blasting. I said, I can't hear you, Scott. You got the music on. He said, oh, right, right, he turned it down. But it was like, everybody did. Everybody picked it. Um, the songs... All the songs in this album reflect the musical taste of everybody in the band. You know, we're, um, it's American music. It's the blues. Uh, then you get jazz. Uh, you got um, bebop, rock and roll, um, uh, country and western, um, gospel music. This band has all those parts of it in our DNA. That's the music we grew up with, we listened to, we absorbed every bit of it. And I think this album, especially this album, reflects all those musical flavors that are in our blood. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I know sometimes when I'm on the road, for, you know, I'm going, I'm scrolling through. I love Tom Petty Station. I listen to Tom Petty Station quite a bit and, and uh, you know, deep tracks and all that stuff. And occasionally I'll find like a gospel music station. And this music is like just fantastic. And and that also, a lot of that stems from like blues. Uh, you know, a lot of the the way it's formulated comes from like blues music. And just, it's American music. Over here in, the, in America, America has given music to the world. We have all these wonderful amalgamations and conglomerations of jazz, blues, rock and roll, gospel, country, hillbilly, folk music. And it all comes together as American music. This this country gave music to the world. And I think, uh, and it did, that the whole world, even to this day, the whole world, you know, listens to American music and what comes out of this land, because we have all these wonderful influences of everybody who moved here. You know, some people think it was the Beatles. The Beatles listened to American music. The Stones grew up listening to American music. I did. And uh, it's one of the reasons I live here because it, as far as I'm concerned, this is my home and this is where music for me was born and I just gravitated to it. Um, and I love my adopted home. Now, 
what made you pick up the drums? What, when did you start playing music? Because you, you've had a very long career and a professional career. Now, you know, 51 years with Bobcat, we don't talk about Savoy Brown, so you, you've had a very long career. But what made you pick up the drum sticks as, as a kid? or what, You had to start as a kid because you were working as a professional musician in, at a very young age. Um, I'm a noisy bastard. Ever <laughs> 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 since I was a child, um, I would play with knives and forks on, on the table, drive my poor mother crazy. I love my mum. My parents, I had really great parents. Um, I would tap on the lampshade as a symbol. I'd do this sort of stuff. And when I was about 12, that was when I decided I wanted to play drums. My father found a drum teacher for me. I worked after school like three days a week and Saturday mornings in a bakery. And I, so I... I had my own money. I mean, we weren't rich by any stretch. We were uh, lived in an attached house in southwest London in Hounslow where I grew up. But there was always music in our house. My father played piano somewhat in the style of like Fat Swallow, that kind of stuff. My older brother, Colin, was an avid um, music listener and bought all the early Sun Records, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, that all came into the house. And I'm like, 12 years old, my 16-year-old brother's buying all this really cool music from the States. So that started me off on my journey. Um, I did initially want to play piano, but as my older brother was getting really good at it, um, my father already played piano. And actually, uh, my father took me to see Jerry Lee Lewis when I was about 12 or 13, somewhere around there, I can't quite remember at a theatre in southwest London because Dad appreciated a fine piano player. And uh, I was never the same after that. My mother said that it addled my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what an addled brain is, but apparently it affected me and that stayed with me forever. I am a huge Jerry D. Lewis fan uh, without... I mean, he was just a, a quintessential rock and roller. Without Chuck Berry, there would be no rock and roll. Without Willie Dixon, there would be no rock and roll. And and all their contemporaries, of course. Um, this is the land of music. And uh, this is my adopted home. And this is why I live here, because you can create and make music. Yeah, look at the band I have, uh, I play in, I should say. I mean, all these guys are just incredible musicians. And uh, we have a blast making music. Now... How did Foghat originate? You you started after being in Savoy Brown. So how did Foghat get started? What happened with Savoy Brown? You guys wanted to leave or what happened? What what was the starting of Foghat that's been around for so long? Yeah. Um, well, um, I auditioned. Uh, I was in a three-piece band myself. Uh, a bass player, Dave Hutchins, who, uh, who was my best friend from school. Ray Dorsett, who later went on to... Uh, for Mungo Jerry with my brother in the summertime. They had a bunch of hits in England. Um, work was starting to slow. I, I was a commercial artist. That's how I earned, earned a living. I was good at it too, and good money. But I wanted to play. I wanted to play music. Um, we, at the time, we were we were working maybe two times a week, something like that. And then it kind of slowed down. We were struggling to get any kind of work, just to play somewhere. Um, there was an audition for uh, a bass player and a drummer for a blues band. I answered in one of the new 
music bags in London, Melody Maker, I think it was. So I go there, and it's a boy Brown. Um, they wanted, uh, the first audition, apparently I failed, as did my friend Dave on bass. And they called me up about a month or two later and said, would you like to come back and try out again? Because the band I was in um, worked with the same agency that Savoy Brown was with. So uh, I came back, I borrowed my dad's car, midday, uh, lunchtime, <clears throat> had my drums in it. It was a place called the Nags Head Pub in Battersea, I think, in southwest London, south London rather. And uh, I went out there, dragged all the drums upstairs, set them up and started playing. Now we played for, I didn't get the first audition, but they called me back. So uh, I played for about two, well over two hours with them learning stuff and going over songs. Then it, then it sort of ended, like everybody started packing up. So I started packing up my drums and they said, oh, where, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going back to work. I have a day job. They said, we're playing in Birmingham tonight. <laughs> that, that's how I recall it. And that was a long time ago. But I have to tell you, playing in Savoy Brown was an absolute revelation for me. I had the time of my life. Um, didn't get paid much. Didn't get paid for the five albums that I played on. Uh, didn't get any kind of royalties for uh, writing or performing. Uh, neither did Dave, even though Dave wrote a number of songs on there and collaborated on stuff. Um, we were, Savoy Brown was playing in uh, San Francisco towards the end of uh, 1970, might have even been, yeah, 70, might have been 71, but I think it was 70. And um, we had a meeting with Kim and Harry, the manager. Um, Tony Stevens got fired. Myself and Dave were told we could stay on in the band if we wanted to. Um, Dave and I went back to my room that night with Tony and um, we started working on some material. The following morning, uh, we had breakfast with the manager, Harry, and said, look, we'll stay in the band until Kim puts a new band together, but um, we'll, we'll leave. It, we weren't getting paid. We, were, we weren't getting paid for any records. We weren't getting paid. We were earning between, the band was getting between seven and $15,000 a night in 1970. That was a lot of money. We got a hundred pounds a week, wife and kid to keep, oh, sorry, a hundred dollars a week, wife and kid to keep. So it was, um, it wasn't lucrative, but the time had come for a change. Uh, and I, and I think Kim also felt the same thing. You know, you can only go so far, but it was, it was great. Uh, and then when we left, um, the manager, Blackboarders in England told us we'd never work again in the States or in, in, in the UK. Um, we did eventually, which was pretty weird. It wasn't Kim. Kim was Kim was always fine. Um, and in fact, Kim and I always had, a, I think, a particularly good relationship, as did Dave with him. Um, and in fact, we reconnected in around 1976. Kim was playing at a... Uh, a university near where I live in Stony Brook University was playing there. So Dave and I went to see him and we reconnected. We, and after the show, he came back to my house. We hang, hung out that night and got a little, uh, what's the term? I don't know if I can say it. Shit face. <laughs> he got a little loose. <laughs> he might, might have stayed there that night and uh, I don't even remember him uh, leaving. Um, I think he stopped drinking after that. 
anyway, we had a good time. We stayed friends after that. Um, we reconnected. And about 10 years or so ago, um, Savoy Brown came to the same agency that we were in Paradise Artists. In fact, that was Linda's, through Linda's help. And so Kim and I got to play together. I would sit in with them. Kim would come and sit in with Foghat. And we just reconnected. And that leads up to the fact that when Kim played on our last previous studio album, Under the Influence, I invited him down to play on it. And we had a, a producer producing that one, Tom Hambridge, great producer, a really great musician and songwriter. And uh, played on it. And after he played about four tracks, as did Scott Holt. And uh, afterwards, after we finished recording, Kim came up to me and said, we were just hanging out talking. He said, look, I'd really like to write some songs to Farcat. And I said, that would be great, as long as you're playing guitar on them. And he smiled that wry smile and said, no problem. Unfortunately, uh, Kim didn't get to play on it. Um, about, I guess, two or three years ago, Kim sent me three tracks, four tracks, actually, four songs that he'd made. And uh, just, you know, his vocals, guitar, and playing, I think he was playing like, to a click track. Um, but they were terrific songs, and the band really liked them. But uh, unfortunately, Kim became ill, and he passed last <clears throat> December. And uh, well, I think we did a good number on the songs. We recorded three of them. We kept one of them back for uh, future digestion. <laughs> and uh, I think the songs, Kim was uh, a fantastic blues guitarist, which is something I think he would appreciate me saying, because that's what he was. He was a, a blues guitarist and a blues musician in every sense of the word. That was the music that inspired him from when he, his childhood, when he was growing up, and he stayed with it all his life. Um, so he, he dabbled in rock and roll because they're, they're related. The blues, without the blues, there would be no rock and roll. But um, yeah, uh, that's basically how Sonic Mojo came about. And uh, I'm particularly proud of the three songs that we wrote with Kim. Well, okay, well, let's get back to Foghat real quick. When you, when you guys went on your own, yeah. when you went on your own, did you ever think your, your first album went gold? Like, how did you, I mean, how do you think that happened? Because you, you just left the band where you weren't getting paid. Okay, you weren't getting paid, and you're, but you're working, and you're working on your craft. How does it end up, you go from being in a band where you're not getting paid, to starting a new band, to getting in a record, and your first six albums all went gold or platinum, the live album went double platinum, but how did you get that first record deal? Who recognized you? Because you already said you were going to get blackballed in London, so what happened? Um, on the... On the first Savoy Brown tour uh, that I was on, I met a guy called Tony Otita, who later became our manager. And um, I, uh, when we left, and uh, we became friends, I, I stayed at his parents' house out on Long Island, went fishing with, called Bluefish, and I said, this is the place for me. And we stayed friends over the years, and, and I would meet him. Anyway, um, he went to see Savoy Brown in 1973, I believe. And of course, Myself, Dave, and Tony Stevens weren't there. So he uh, he called me up and said, what's going on? I said, um, we left the band and we're forming a new band. Uh, with that, he 
borrowed some money from his dad and came over to England and um, he had a rela- he built a relationship with um, Albert Grossman. I think the, de- the story was that um, he'd interviewed uh, with Albert Grossman for a position at, at somewhere within Albert's record uh, company or whatever. And he came, he came over. We did a six-song demo, recorded it at Abbey Road Studios because our manager at the time was a huge Beatle fan. He probably figured it would sort of, some of the magic might rub off on us. I, I don't think that... that Actually, the five or six of those songs, I think, did make it onto the first album, but uh, a completely different disguise. That was because of our uh, Dave Edmonds, who became our producer on that first album with his magic dust. Anyway, um, Albert Grossman, uh, who was Bob Dylan's manager, um, the band's manager, Peter, Paul and Mary, um, Janis Joplin, he came over to England with the band, who, who he also managed, and he brought Todd Rungan over, and Albert took a day off to come and see us. We rented a room uh, below a pub in northwest London, in Islington, and um, he came down to see us. We just, the, just the four of us played uh, with our high watts and marshals. He, he visibly went, oh, and we started playing. Um, but Albert uh, was, um, he was something else. He, uh, and then after, I can tell this story. He, uh, he finished, we finished playing. We played about six or seven songs. It was probably enough to give him a headache. No, I'm just kidding. And, and then he said, um, well, uh, hey, is there anywhere we can get some tea and biscuits? I said, yeah, I was familiar with the area. I said, just across the road, there's a, hotel so we went to this hotel across the road in northwest london and we're sitting there we order tea and biscuits and we're just sitting around this table now i know i knew who albert grossman was that if he liked what he heard this you know this man can make things work and uh tea and biscuits arrived i think i poured some tea and now albert used to do this thing with his cuticles it's a, 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 a um very impressive man, big man, silver hair, like big long ponytail, and he said, "Well, uh, hey, let's do it." <laughs> it like, I still get chills to this day when I think about, and I hear those words. And um, about a month or so later, he sent me ten thousand dollars. I booked studio time at Rockfield in Wales, where Dave Edmonds had the night shift. And Fogger had the day shift. We'd start at like midday when Dave Edmonds would finish and we would record until Dave came into the studio at night. Same room that we were in. Uh, Dave was mixing uh, an album or records. And uh, anyway, um, our songs were okay, but they didn't sound... We would listen to Dave's, Dave Edmonds stuff and there was magic in the air when his music was pushing the speakers when we put our stuff on it just sounded a bit um i'm gay i was going to say lame but it's not lame bit tame i think is a better term because we needed a helping hand we weren't producers we could play and we could write and we could put stuff together but we need to know how to produce a record and make it sound great 
So our manager asked Dave Evans if he would produce Foghat because we became, you know, we knew each other by this time. And uh, Dave said, well, I've, uh, I've got to finish my record. But yeah, when I've finished, I'll uh, help you guys out. And he gave us a helping hand. A number of people did on that record. Um, there was a number of people we thanked on the record who played on it and gave us a helping hand. But I also know that without Dave Edmonds' input and producing that album, I don't think Foghat's first album would have been anywhere near as successful as it was. In fact, I know that. Dave Edmonds, as far as I'm concerned, is a fucking genius. And uh, he's just a brilliant musician and uh, producer. And uh, I thank him on a regular basis. In fact, they just released uh, our first album, I think. What label? Um, Cherry Red Records, uh, they released it. I think I did some liner notes on it as well. So that's where it started. So then what happened? Thank you, Albert. You guys, you guys start getting yeah. bigger and bigger. And, and what is that like? I mean, you know, once again, it's not like today. Like, you know, you look, you guys were coming out with an album every year. I mean, that's what I tell people. It's amazing. You know, back in the day, bands... And, you, and as listeners, we'd expect that. You know, if there was an album, if it was a year ago, what the hell's what the hell's wrong? We didn't get a new album. But you, you have a streak of these big sellers. What was it? What was the magic? Was it just, you know, was it that you're, I mean, they're great songs, but what do you think kept you guys with that momentum? Because you said gold, 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 platinum, gold. I mean, what was it? Well, um, we'd had, when we left Savoy Brown, we had a... Uh, 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 a year and a half or two, I call it wandering in the um, abyss of being out of work and wondering, you know, how we're going to make this work. When you do get your shot and your chance, uh, certainly myself and, and the early band, especially myself and Lonesome Dave, we grabbed it with both hands and me with hands and feet. We played anywhere and everywhere. Um, we didn't stop to take time off to do this or do that. We wanted to play. I think the first tour I was in, I was in the States for about 13 months. And by the time I got home, my daughter was walking and it was like, who's that, who's that man in bed with you, mummy? It's your daddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and even uh, throughout our career, uh, certainly myself and, and Dave was like that. Um, we loved to play it was the magic of getting on stage you know turning around some you know kicking the pedals and hitting sticks it was just uh, i love what i do um and the current band is an absolute joy to play with we are a band in every sense of the word we we play together we look at each other we grin we laugh we have fun with it it's and uh, and it was that way with with dave as well when he was alive. I enjoyed working with Dave and playing with Dave. Dave would always give it, come on stage and give it 110%. When you play with, with somebody like that, it, it just makes it so much uh, easier and more fun. And with the current band, it's the same. We go on stage and we all give it 110. We give it everything you've got because give it everything you've got because tomorrow might be too late. And, uh, you know, we're a rock and roll band that's uh, steeped in the blues. And um, I love playing that music. I like playing this music. We have 17 uh, studio albums under our belt. So we have a lot 
of material to pick from when we go on the road. Well, tell me, tell me about the song "Slow Ride" because that's an iconic song. That's that's one of the songs. Where did that come from? Because it, it's a longer song, but. W- w- I just whenever you hear that when I'm driving, there's certain songs when you're driving and you hear it. It's just like if you hear uh, "Frankenstein" by Winters, you, you, you crank it because it's just the beginning. Yours, did you guys know it, that was going to be such a magical song when you were creating it? Um, well, uh, myself, not when we were actually recording it and when we first started writing it. Uh, uh, it came, um, Nick Jamieson just joined the band. I'd ask him if he wanted to play in the band. He joined us. Uh, Rod Price and I shared a, had a house in Long Island that we had the basement soundproofed. And we, myself, I was living up in Woodstock at the time. And uh, Nick and I came down. We set up in the basement and started playing Slow Ride. Um, we, actually, the music came first. Then Dave said, you know, I've got some lyrics that will fit with that. Nick Jamieson arranged the whole song, the whole, you know, arranged all the breaks, the drum and uh, bass break, and the, the way that the, the song was format, formulated. And, of course, speeding it up at the end was mine and Nick's idea, I think. Love to play fast. Anyway, um, we finished making for the Fall for the City album, which it was on. Um, Nick and I were coming back from Sharon, Vermont, where we recorded the album, and we'd mixed the single, which was Slow Ride, and on the B-side was another song, uh, Save Your Loving, because we, this is the one time that I, I recall, other than the first album, where the band said, this is the single. So we went to see Paul Fishkin, who was the head of uh, Bearsville Records at Bearsville, and we played him Slow Ride, which was nearly eight minutes long. And Paul Fishkin said, well, you can't put an eight-minute single out. And we said, myself and Nick Jamieson said, yes, you can, and that this is what we're doing. Um, we did put it out. Uh, DJs and radio stations back then uh, some of them were fine with eight minutes, but a lot of them like would fade it out. Um, we didn't want to edit it, but eventually Nick Jamieson re-edited it uh, down to about four minutes, I think, or four and a half minutes, which seemed a bit more acceptable. But uh, that was one of the few times that the band said, this is the song. And it was uh, Nick Jamieson and myself who uh, pulled the plug on maybe putting anything else out. That was it. That was a single. And, uh, yeah, I love playing that song to this day. It's, uh, it's a riot. And it's one of those things that just people know it. Everyone knows that song. Now, now the live album, you know, a lot of people, that's where a lot of people, back then, people would find artists they didn't really know that much about. Like a young kid would hear, a, hear some songs and, like, their brother would put on a live album. Who decided to bring out the live album? And then that album just blew up. And where did you record? Was it recorded at different places or it all was in one concert? Um, Nick Jamieson had left the band a couple of years before. Craig McGregor was now our resident bass player. He was my brother by a different mother. Uh, Craig and I were really, really tight as a rhythm section. And as friends, we would hang out and listen to music, uh, bass and drums, you know, it's like, like that. And uh, we'd finished, I think, doing the, uh, what is it, the, uh, what was the song we did over in Connecticut? Um, night shift album 
and um, it was we were making one record a year, an album a year. That was our deal with uh, Bearsville Records. I think Rod and Dave were struggling to write write songs. We were playing, you know, five days or six, seven days a week anyway. Um, and I would get cassettes from shows each night from our front of house engineer, Bob Coffey, a great engineer and a good friend, still is. And um, I would listen to stuff. I had a, a boom box, a JVC boom box that was given to me by a promoter. Thank you. <laughs> and I would listen to them. It was, it was basically to try and keep an eye on like tempos and groove mates. Cause sometimes um, back then youthful exuberance would take over and songs might lose their uh, groove and become a little too fast. You know, we were young and um, full of beans or full of something anyway. Uh, we were having too much fun out there. Uh, but that was why I was listening to it. And then I said to the band, uh, you know, the band's sounding great, even from these cassette plays. And um, uh, we decided to do a live album. We got Nick Jamieson involved again. Um, we rented the RCA mobile unit. We recorded, I, I, I'll have to talk to Nick one of these days, but I, rec I think we recorded at maybe three or four or five or six shows. I'm not sure. But I do know that the songs came from Syracuse and Rochester. The, those two shows that we were doing at the time, that's where the, the, the album came from. Now, we were playing at least an hour and a half or maybe more at the time. Why we only did a single album, I don't know. I think it might have had something to do with Warner Brothers figured maybe a single album's all that's it's worthwhile. But there's definitely um, another hour's worth of uh, music from those shows hidden in the vaults of Warner Brothers. Now, uh, I did. T I was out there about about seven or eight years ago. I was at Warner Brothers because um, Bearsville had sold everything to Warner Brothers, which was the original parent company. And I mentioned this to somebody there that maybe I should go down into their vaults and find the tapes and maybe get Nick Jamison to mix the songs that didn't go on that record because it was a. Uh, I think it was a classic lineup of Foghat, and we were all on fire at the time. And uh, but they said, oh, no, nobody can go down there. So I said, well, how would you know where this is? Uh, I don't know. Nobody's allowed down there. So maybe one day. Actually, they sent me a bunch of two track tapes, five of them, I think, that we recorded in 1973 at the warehouse in New Orleans. And this, they sent them to me a couple of years ago. And it's just and. I had to try and go through them and pick some of the performances, but it was direct to two track. There was no way of uh, mixing it or anything, but I listened to the songs. There was a bunch of songs on there that we'd never recorded before versions of it that nobody will ever hear. And uh, so I went through it and picked out what I thought would be the uh, best versions of it. Like I said, sonically it's mass missing you know, sometimes the bass is too loud or it's not. You don't, sometimes you don't hear the lead guitar as well as you would. Um, and of course, 1973, there was a lot of youthful enthusiasm down in New Orleans, uh, this place called The Warehouse. And it was recorded over two nights. Um, 
they just sent me four acetates. I'm down in Florida, so I don't have them. That may be coming out in the next year or so. Um, if somebody wants to go back to 1973 and the warehouse when Foghat was playing, um, that would be the one to listen to. Uh, it's, um, you know what it is? Making music is like a moment in time. It, you know, like, like with our current album. Though all those songs, whenever we're recording a song, we never do it more than two or three times. You know, you rehearse it, you work out the arrangement and figure out what you're going to, or it just comes from a jam. You just go, well, oh, there's a bit of magic in that. We'll keep that. Um, and that that's what it was like back then with that, that recording. Also, like with any live, uh, we've done dozens of live recordings over the year. Like, since um, Dave passed, we've done four studio albums and four live albums. So it's like, this is what we do, and um, and I, I'm going to keep doing it until the a day I depart. And Warner Brothers, from time to time, will find stuff and say, "Rog, what do you think of this?" And I'll say, hey, "Let me listen to it." Uh, so, yeah, it's music. What 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 is the biggest crowd you guys ever played to? I always wonder. And what's it like as a drummer? Because you have the helm, you're overseeing all. It's you, like you're on the riser. And and my friend is Jason Aldean's drummer, and when he puts pictures from the he he'll send me pictures where it's it's like you're on a perch, you're on a mountain, and you see the faces. What was what were some of the biggest crowds you played? And do you ever sit there and go, "Holy shit, that's a big crowd." <laughs> um, you know, I, to be honest with you, I, before I go on stage, whether it's fifty thousand, five thousand, or five hundred, I'm. Um, I get, I get excitement. I do. I get excited. There's like a, a nervous, ten, not nervous, but real tension about going out there and playing. As soon as I get on my drum riser and I count off the first song, I'm fine. I'm everything. Like everything is. It's like um, it's the most natural place for me to be there and playing in this band. And it's um, it's always a joyous occasion. You know, some rooms sound better than others some rooms i hear each we hear each other better than others but it's always like you know there's the four of us making music and like talking to each other that's what music's about actually brian bassett said this one time he said playing music in a band is like having a conversation with the other musicians and that's kind of what you, with me it's a loud conversation but uh that's what it's about the joy of making music um did that answer your question, I can't no, well, the question what's was. the biggest the biggest crowd like looking back what's the biggest people you've looked out and seen because i heard you know after a while you don't really see the people in the back you just see you know you just see heads uh i i can't remember the probably like 50 or 200 thousand people i remember one time we did a show with the band and the Allman Brothers and Foghat was third on the bill. That that seemed to go on forever. Uh, and I think that was probably about 200,000 people. Um, yeah, uh, you know, playing stadiums. Um, it, it's always great. But I have to tell you, I, my favorite place for playing to people is like 
in like a theater, like, you know, maybe anywhere between a thousand to three or four thousand people in a theater. That's really cool. And also occasionally we get a chance to play in a smaller room, you know, a club that's got five or six hundred people or a thousand people. That's always fun. Any any gig in Detroit is always a blast. That's one of my favorite cities to play. And or and and Chicago as well. Actually I like going to New Orleans and LA can be fun. Um Boston's a really good town to play and we're gonna be playing in New York uh this Sunday. Oh there, there again I ramble. No, if I know okay, so you have some shows coming up. You're playing in Atlantic City December ninth, um, at the Hard Rock. Yeah. But now when you play, how does it make you personally feel? Because there's people who are coming to the show, and they're bringing their kids, and I'm sure some people bring their grandkids. As an artist, how does that make you feel that you've touched, not just like one person, you've touched generations, and I'm sure you run into it, like you see a little kid with a fog hat shirt, and you go, oh man, that's me, that's me. But how does that make you feel as an artist? Because it shows that you've put an imprint, and to put an imprint on someone, to to put a lasting lasting just a, a fascination or I can't even think of the word just a lasting message what does that make you feel like as an artist because you've touched generations you know um, this reminds me we did a show in New Mexico this summer we had it was so far it was over 200 miles away from the airport it was in the middle of the desert it was it was for raising money for wounded warriors and something that um, I feel very strongly about. I'll work with any any kind of thing where it's for wounded warriors or helping children that are ill in hospitals and stuff like that. But it was Chaka or something that was in the middle of no, in a desert. And there was only about, couldn't have been more than two, three, four hundred people there, but right down the front of the audience of the show, this is in... New Mexico, in the middle of nowhere. There's these two kids, probably eight, nine, ten, a little girl and a little boy. As soon as we started playing, they didn't stop dancing for an hour and a half, literally. And I kept looking at them and like this, I had this big shit-eating grin on my face and there was a picture of me there. It was like, when you have that effect on people, and and it's really cool, especially young people, it's like... Uh, that I really get a kick of that, kick out of that, and then you know, nine times out of ten, our audience, our Foghat fans are great. They're uh, they come to, they come to have a good time. They know that they that they're going to hear some like rock and roll and some blues and have a good time, uh, because that's what playing music is all about: is entertaining people and having fun to take you away from the uh, maybe. The drudgery of life. Uh, my life isn't drudgery. It's I, I'm one of those fortunate few that gets to play in a rock and roll band. But other people have to go to work. My work is traveling, I'm playing. That's uh, uh, that's fun. That's the best part of my life: making music, creating music. Well, it's funny. And, uh, yeah. No, I was gonna say I saw I saw you with a fog and Bloister called at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Uh, 
long ago. I still remember because back then you'd save your ticket, yeah, and I was so excited because it was like such a great show. Me and my friends went, and it was just you know three hours of just between you and them of just kick ass rock, and and that's that's you're right. That's you're the person who supplies that, and I still remember. And that's the thing: people remember concerts when you make an imprint on them. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've done lots of shows with Blue Oyster over the years. They're a Long Island band too, and I'm really good friends with everybody in that band and, and everybody who's been in that band. Um, great, great band. Uh, their manager's a total asshole, but other than that, the band, I love those guys. They're the, they're the best. Uh, they're, you know, we're friends, and I, and I always enjoy it. Do I see a show coming up with Blue Oyster Cole? It's like, all right, we get to hang out with friends again. I'm good friends with their current drummer now and uh, the other guys in the band. It's like, they're the best. It's uh, And I and I have that relationship with a number of bands now. We just did a show with um, Grand Funk Railroad. I mean, I love playing with those guys. I mean, they have some fantastic songs and they can sing. Their harmonies is like, huh, where do these angels come from? <laughs> uh, and Don Brewer, I'm good friends with Don, obviously the drummer and... Uh, he plays great. Uh, the band is great. They've, they have, they've made some fantastic music over the years. Uh, ZZ Top, we did some shows with them this summer. I love playing with those guys. Um, I was hanging out backstage and uh, it was um, it was fun. And I got up and you know and, and watched them play. Uh, Billy Gibbons is probably one of the greatest guitar players, blues guitar players ever and uh i hung out backstage with him he'd be wandering around in his pajamas such a cool, cool guy and he just loves to play his whole thing is about making music has a wonderful sense of humor uh, they lost their bass player and uh but their uh bass players guitar tech is now playing bass with them and it's like they almost didn't miss a beat the thing is it's about the music it's always a. It's always been about the music. For any some bands, you know, don't survive if somebody passes, um, and I, I I can understand that. You know, like maybe the band re- was that way. With me, um, I'll keep playing music until the day I can't play. Um, you know, I have had work done on my hands, my feet, my knees, my shoulders, and like you know, band aids and glued back together and I'm fine I try to take care of myself but it's again I come back to the stage that it's it's about the music um it is sad when you lose people um and you miss them but you don't stop living you know you mourn and and you go through that phase I remember when Dave passed um I was I talked to Dave about uh, about three weeks a couple of weeks before he passed he was in hospital and uh, and I got the call eight o'clock in the morning from his daughter called me and said that 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 dad had passed. And I wasn't sure if I ever wanted to do anything with the band. I just took about three, four months of just, you know, wondering. I just didn't know what to do, you know, because Dave was a huge part of this band. But then um, the juices started flowing. We found Charlie Hume. who was a great singer, great guitar player. And... Uh, we carried on, and then when Charlie decided to retire uh, this year, I uh, I said, "Okay, 
fortunately Scott Holt was down here in the studio. We were working on some songs, and uh, I said to Scott, "You want to be the singer in Foghat?" He said, "Ah, oh, yeah." Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, you know, uh, before we he, go, we got to wrap it up soon. I want to ask you though. Yeah, no. I always ask my guests this: When Foghat was giant, tell me a really cool story because I love old rock and roll stories. Like someone, Jesse Colin Young, just told me how he was opening for a CSNI, CNSN, CSNY when the night Nixon resigned, and he remembered, and he didn't know what was going on the stadium. I love stories. Tell me a tell me a good rock and roll story to close the show out. Uh, you know, are there any children listening? No. Yeah, <laughs> the blues show. It. it I, I've met a number of my musical heroes who were giants to me and are. Uh, 1977, Foghat did a tribute to the blues in New York City at the Palladium. I got to play. We were the house band for Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Johnny Winter, uh, Paul Butterfield, uh, Eddie Bluesman Kirkland, who actually played on one of our records with us, and we backed him on a number of other shows. Playing with uh, uh, meeting uh, Willie Dixon in Chicago, meeting his children, going to Willie Dixon's house and having dinner with him and sitting there and just sitting next to this giant of a music man where there would be no rock and roll if it wasn't for people like Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters. And that that's, that's the joy of playing music and the joy for me that I, met, I got to meet and play with my musical heroes. And you know what? None of them, none of them let me down. They just, they just shone like these musical beacons and I was like you know the reason you get into music is because you're a fan you're a fan of music and you're a fan of certain artists and that's the reason you play because you're a fan Uh, that's the reason you have this driving ambition to play and want to do it because you are a fan you're a fan of music you're a fan and um, I get a fantastic kick out of playing and the same with I got to meet my heroes and play with them. Um, I am rich because of those uh, encounters. That was awesome. I want to thank you for coming on, Roger. People, the album, because when this airs, the album will be already out. The album is Sonic Mojo. Go buy it. Go to the website, foghat.com. There's some great shows coming up. Go check them out live. They will not let you down. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 980 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.